G'day beer lovers, I'm Pete Mitchum, co-host of Brews News Week, and it is my pleasure to present this very special edition of Radio Brews News Live. During the recent Good Beer Week in Melbourne, the Crime Alt Trade Hub at Beer Deluxe was once again a focus for the brewing industry, with a number of important trade discussions taking place. And with special thanks to Kegstar, Brews News was able to be there to record some of those panels, and we're proud to present these discussions. This panel, hosted by Brews News Week regular and co-founder of Totem Marketing, Zoe Ottaway, was an informative discussion about product labelling, including the statutory and legal requirements for beer labelling, the importance of adhering to these standards, and the way in which ABAC treats product labelling complaints. We'll look at the issues from a retail perspective with Endeavour Drinks Demido Morta, as well as the potential legal and financial repercussions. Also on the panel, you'll hear Steve Hendo Henderson, formerly of Brewcult, who gives us first-hand experience of potentially falling foul of labelling standards and how an ABAC investigation works. And also from Jamie Cook, the chair of the Independent Brewers Association, who goes into detail about just how the IBA can assist existing and potential brewing companies to comply with what can often be a daunting and challenging exercise outside of many brewers' basic skill set. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you very much, and welcome to the Cryer Malt Trade Hub here at Fed Square at Beer Deluxe for Good Beer Week 2019. I'm Pete Mitchum from Australian Brews News and Radio Brews News, and it's my pleasure to facilitate this uh, panel of experts who know much more about the topic than I do. So it's my job just basically to to let them run with it. Uh, we do want this to be as interactive as you guys would like it to be. So if you do have a question, as I say, as, as we're going through, feel free to ask it. You don't need to wait till a, a Q&A section at the end, but just wait until the um, microphone comes out. It gives me great pleasure to introduce the panel. From Totem Marketing, would you please welcome Zoe Ottaway? <laughs> From Stone and Wood and also as a member, well, the, the pre, El Presidente, El Jefe, <laughs> the chairman of the uh, Independent Brewers Association, Jamie Cook. Uh, some homeless bloke who's walked in off the street. <laughs> no. For Rockstar Brewer Academy, would you please welcome Steve Hendo Henderson. <laughs> and because he couldn't be asked leaving the last panel, he's just stayed for this one. From Endeavour Drinks, please welcome Demid Omorda. <laughs> so let's kick off. Um, I've got a question. Why does labelling matter? From a brewer's perspective, with my IBA hat on, I think um, brewers... Brewers who aren't home brewers, who are professional brewers, have two responsibilities, um, I think, key. Uh, one is they have a responsibility to their consumer. Um, they're no longer an amateur status. If you're a professional commercial brewer, you're, you're taking people's hard-earned money off them. Um, therefore, you have a responsibility to make sure that your product does what it says on the tin. So if, certainly from a labelling perspective and a guideline perspective, you need to make sure that you're actually f following... Um, the regulations uh, and making sure that you're adhering to those and, and actually delivering the consumer what, what they expect uh, and, and delivering value. The other hat you wear as a brewer is you're a member of the industry and you have a responsibility to your peers in the industry to make sure that you're ensuring that that social licence that we have as to operate as brewers stays in place. Um, so you have a responsibility to making sure that you're going about your marketing and your activities in a very responsible way that doesn't risk that social licence we as brewers have. So this kind of goes to that um, old adage of uh, when somebody comes across from whether it be wine, cider, spirits or uh, you know, the big house side of beer, the mainstream beer, that when they drink your beer, they're drinking everyone's beer for that, for that first occasion. So we have that responsibility to them, to, to, rep, to each other, to represent each other well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, and um, and when we get down to um, the ABAC side of things in terms of marketing, etc., we've got to position beer in the right light with consumers, and everyone has a joint responsibility in doing that. One person doing something not right could upset the apple cart for everybody. From a, I guess, a specific stone and wood um, position, ten years down the track, are you doing things differently in terms of labelling? Because 2008, when you guys first put beers on shelves there was not nearly the same competition. There might have been 150, 200 breweries across the country. Today, you know, you wake up, you go to put a, a stone and wood beer on the shelf and you go, okay, I've got to fit it in around 520 brewers. H has your marketing outlook changed or do you still just look at your brand 
rather than comparing. From, from a from a adherence to mandatory perspective, we've always, from day one, followed followed the the codes in place around labelling or the ABAC code. Um, so. Um, I think that's the key. It doesn't matter how much competition there is around, you still need to follow the, the mandatories. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the code in place for the moment for packaging hasn't really changed much in the last probably 10 years or more. Um, so so we, we, we stepped out on the first day with, with the packaging adhering to code. For putting your IBA hat on again, Jamie, are you seeing... Uh, are there polite conversations or phone calls when you see perhaps new products coming onto the market that could or should be labelled... Better? Yeah, you still see it out in the marketplace, definitely. Yeah, there's there's opportunities there. Now, you see package all the time that may not have a best before code or uh, on it, and that could be because they aren't, aren't putting it on or that run the machine played up and therefore they just let it go out or for a half an hour the machine... Or that work. one where it's light black ink on a dark brown bottle. Yep, yep, that's... <laughs> I'm getting old. It's, it's, it's harder to see. Zoe, from the marketer's point of view, uh, labelling often starts with, you know, your, your brand premise, um, your brand story and those sort of things. Talk, talk us through, for those who don't know, about Totem Marketing. Free hit. Do you like what I did there? Um, and then tell us, I guess, how, how you support um, the, the, the beer industry or the community. Very quickly, Totem um, is uh, we're dedicated to helping small independent producers with their marketing, communications and branding needs um, with a real focus on strategy. So we'll wrap that up quick. So when it comes to something with like labelling, it's very easy to get caught up in the the colours and the stories and the excitement of a, um, of a label coming out and, the, and a fancy name when really that's the best place to start is what are the legalities, um, you know, whether it be the communication about the ABV in the can through to the um, pregnancy um, icon. Um, there's, there's all those mandatories you have to have and then you kind of can build your template around that. Um, I'm going to hopefully we'll repeat this a few times during the session because it is an incredible and very generous tool that the IBA have made available to um, not just members but everyone in the um, beer community. Um, There's an amazing toolkit on their website which is exactly that. It's a beautiful checkpoint on what both breweries, designers, marketers, anyone involved in the process should be referring to. Um, and I would encourage anyone that's involved in the process, even if it's someone within the team that just does the final check, um, to be aware of that um, that manual. Um, it should be a part of the design process. Um, you know, once you finish the beer, we've, we've checked this for the label, we've got our allocations out, it should just be a part of every new beer release. It's, it's just part of the um, checklist that you do. Because it's also not just, oh, I've got to have that information. It's got to be a certain either size yeah. or font or... Uh, yeah, font, um, uh, yeah, uh, depth of the letters. Um, it's all pretty strict. Um, it's there for a reason. It's there for the consumer first and foremost. Um, and that's what we're all in business for, um, whether it's breweries, whether it's retailers, whether it's external partners like us. At the end of the day, we're only in business because of customers, um, so we have to respect what they need. Um, and this is all important stuff. Like, it might be as little as the um, clearly communicating the ABV because that is obviously a very serious thing um, and we should take it seriously. And speaking of the consumer, uh, the representative, I guess, of, of the consumer at the, at the mouth of the river, didn't we say, damn it? Um, from the brewer to you know the retailer or the the, the distributor, but at the end of the day, the, you're the link between the the brewer and the uh, the consumer. Talk us through your role, and then uh, I guess how important labelling is, you know, and tips for young players. Uh, yeah, so my role, I manage quality product quality for uh, Dan Murphy's and BWS. Uh, just really around ensuring uh, the legalities are met, so it's the products. Uh, fit for market, it's got the correct information, um, adheres to the food standards code, uh, it's the way consumers expect it to be, so the right taste, etc., and it's safe. Um, we work very closely with our suppliers uh, in ensuring we maintain that. If issues pop up, we've got, I suppose, feedback loops from our DCs, stores, and customers. And that information then we're, we, we're very open to share with our suppliers to make them aware of the issues we're identifying at our part of the supply chain and really work with them to uh, basically fix them. Um, you know, I, I think the key thing there is that, you know, if we, we're happy to play that role in picking up the issues before consumer gets your product and then work with you guys to do that. 
Now, if we identify an issue with the labeling, uh, I think the, the big examples we get are more around ABAC. So uh, just, um, you know, from ensuring that the, there's all those requirements are met, you know, it's not appealing to children, there's no violence, etc. Uh, that's something we are happy to work with uh, brewers on and just give them some guidance ourselves. We've got access within the business internally to lawyers and regulatory uh, experts that we can basically give you guys some pointers. And we will talk a little bit about ABEC shortly and how all, how that all works. But would you say that uh, in your role, are you uh, as stringent or as strict or are you even perhaps a little bit more strict than... Yeah, we, we, we than take ABEC? 50% of the market... Um, we've got, so quite a wide reach, uh, big responsibility. We have a license to operate and not uh, been an ABAC signatory and member, uh, we adhere to the code strictly, yes. Uh, so if, if an issue is raised by, say, a consumer, member of the public, and it's uh, upheld by ABAC, uh, we will withdraw the product. Conversely, if something is perhaps deemed okay by ABAC, do you have a process where you would sort of look through things and say, well, yeah, maybe it's, it, it, it adheres to the rules, but it's not a product that we as a company want to be associated with? Or do you just say, well, not fair play, they've said okay, let it um, through? Generally, I would say we're quite aligned in uh, the principles we operate under. Uh, if it's something that, you know, I, I, I'd have to get an example, really, to answer, uh, you know, correctly yep. what you're asking. But... Um, as long as it adheres to ABAC just on a top level, uh, we, we will move with the product and take it. Should we move on to ABAC, I guess, since we've, um, we've come up to that and use some examples and uh, introduce Hendo. Hi. A little bit of experience with ABAC in the past? A, a little bit, yeah. Didn't well, you used to have a brewery? I used to have a oh, brewery. Oh, sorry, too yes. soon. No, go on. So tell us all about uh, your experience through Brewcult and your experience with ABAC and how it yeah, works. Yeah, so, um, well, I, I, let's talk about ABAC first and... Um, run through what ABAC do. ABAC stands for the uh, Alcoholic Beverage Advertising Code. And uh, in Australia, uh, we have a government body called Ad Standards. And what they do is if you have a complaint about some advertising, you can make that complaint to Ad Standards uh, and they will deal with it, unless it's alcohol. Um, if it's alcohol that complaint that you lodge through ad standards gets referred to uh, ABAC. So ABAC is not a government entity. They call it quasi-regulation. So it's basically self-regulation. The industry self-regulates. It, it basically uh, exists to uh, cover advertising and marketing standards related to alcoholic beverages. So, for example, um, it might be beer labelling, it might be a television commercial, it might be a billboard... Um, uh, it might be some point of sale, whatever it happens. It might be and social media as well. Uh, it covers social media. And so there are some certain requirements uh, that brewers or people who manufacture alcohol uh, are required, the certain standards that you're required to um, adhere to, and that comes through the code itself. So firstly, um, it is not a proactive organisation. So even if you go and create a product which blatantly uh, is contra contrary to the code, uh, ABAC can't go and proactively investigate you. They can only respond when somebody complains. Uh, so, that, so, that, so it doesn't have that power to be proactive. And so the main part of the code is really about um, the portrayal of alcoholic beverages to minors uh, and that includes things like on social media where uh, you can't really have anyone who looks or who appear to, appears to be under the age of 25 uh, involved in any alcohol marketing or advertising. And that includes social media influencers or paid social media influencers. Um, you um, have to uh, moderately portray alcohol. So, for example, uh, it, it, you can't... Uh, have advertising which shows people just downing pints and pints of beer and being irresponsible with alcohol. Um, you have to be responsible with regards to the effects of alcohol. So you can't have some super high ABV product and go, drink this, this is going to get you hammered. 
Um, so you, you definitely can't do something like that. And you have to also depict alcohol in, uh, in terms of uh, safety as well. It's a really common sense code. It's, um, uh, it's, it's only like three or four pages, um, but everything you read in it is really, really common sense. And you touched on it's, it's, it's reactive rather than proactive. As a new brewer, if I've got a concept for labels and that sort of thing, can I send it to ABAC, not, not for approval, but say, look, yes. is there something that so, can be so complained the, about? The, the jobs that ABAC do, so firstly they uh, write and very occasionally revise the code. Uh, they respond to complaints. Uh, the third job that they do is they offer a pre-vetting service. So if you're looking at um, creating a product or some marketing material or a social media campaign or something like that, you can actually pay them. It's pretty reasonably priced. It's only like uh, $250 or $300 an hour. It might sound like a lot, but it's only going to take half an hour or something to really look at your marketing material. And they'll actually have an adjudicator um, compare that to the standard around the, the ABAC code um, and they'll actually give you guidance uh, as to where you might be going wrong. And the fourth thing that they do is lots of uh, research around community standards um, because community standards relating to alcohol do change over time and, uh, and so they're constantly doing research to make sure that they're in touch with what the community expects. So here's an example. So this this is a, a beer, Gingerbread Maniac, uh, which I did with uh, Brew Cult. This is actually my Gab's beer from 2016, I think it was. And so um, this was a beer that we were looking to put into the Gab's Mix Six Pack, which was um, uh, going to go into Dan Murphy's, right? And so um, this went in front of Woolworths and they just went, no. <laughs> So much, no. so much no. <laughs> and they said, <laughs> "What's they the pro- talk us through the problems with this?" So, what, start, well, start so anywhere. what? 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 what the, the, there was a bit of back and forth between myself, um, uh, guy from Gabs and um, Woolworths on how we could actually make this work. And after a bit of backwards and forwards, they said, "Look, if you send this to ABAC and if they pre-vet it, cool, we'll 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 let it run." So we put it into pre-vetting with ABAC. What do you guys think might be wrong with this beer? You tell me. Violence? The, the perceived violence? Yes, it is a gingerbread man holding a gingerbread chainsaw busting through a pane of glass. Well spotted. Anything else? Appeals to minors? That's, uh, that certainly was one of, the, one of the big things. The gingerbread Gin- man looks a little bit... Yeah, for those listeners who can't so see... So he's it, got all he, the eyes going all over the place. He's fuck-eyed, I think, is the um, technical... <laughs> I'm just going to tell you that the designer of that label is sitting up the back there. So. Yeah. <laughs> so we're just we're just tearing your baby apart here in front of you. It's so cruel. Matt worked very hard on this. But it's the only way he'll learn. Uh, so the the feedback from um, from ABAC with regards to the pre-vetting was um, the name of the beer was actually acceptable. We could actually call the beer Gingerbread Maniac but we weren't allowed to use the phrase gingerbread man because that relates to a fairy tale and therefore appeals to minors. Um, the gingerbread man um, with the gingerbread chainsaw busting through a pane of glass, that was kind of a bit of a, uh, a no-no. They did refer to it. But the main thing that they actually referred to was the actual G- Brewcult Jimmy logo, um, which was pretty new um, at the time. And so... Um, for the people listening on the podcast, it's Jimmy. He's like a a a, a youngish looking person, but definitely over the age of twenty five, in my opinion, um, with some swirly eyes and a missing tooth. And so um, they really took exception to uh, to that. They basically said that um, uh, they got really weird on me. To be honest with you, they they said that um, um, Jimmy, the character Jimmy, could be misinterpreted as Jimmy Neutron, the Disney character, or Jimmy Olsen, the Superman character. I don't know how they got that. Uh, That was rude. And then they also said, and I'll quote them, and the song Jimmy says is all about school. Now, I got this and I went... Actually, they said the Pat Benatar song Jimmy says is all about school. And I'm like, "How how do they go from that to Pat Benatar? Now... 
I'm an old guy. I know who Pat Benatar is. I, my sisters used to have all the vinyl records, that sort of thing. But, and I knew all of the Pat Benatar songs, you know, like All Fired Up and Love is a Battlefield and all that sort of thing. But I'd never heard of the Pat Benatar song, Jimmy Says. So I Googled, in quotes, Jimmy Says. The first, song, uh, the first result to come up on Google was um, a rare B-side that Pat Benatar did in 1988. It was a song called Jimmy Says and it was about school bullying. That was a pretty long stretch of the straw there, but um, but they they did certainly take exception to that. The other thing that they they took ex- exception to is the phrase "be the maniac," um, because you're promoting irresponsible behaviour um, in relation to alcohol, um, and you can't say you will become a gingerbread maniac. You have to say something like you have uh, you'll savour the gingerbread taste. So it was well outside of. Um, what is considered appropriate um, for community standards. It ticked all the boxes, yes, thank you. So the interesting thing about ABAC is is that if a complaint is made to ABAC about a label, um, the um, adjudication panel, I think they have 30 days to review the complaint and make a ruling. And so when they make a ruling, the complaint is either upheld, which means that it is in, in breach of the ABAC code, or it's dismissed, which means... It's, it's actually okay. Um, and so um, if a complaint is made and that complaint is upheld by the adjudication board, um, then if you are a signatory to the ABAC code, you're required to remove that product from the market within five or seven days or something like that. It's a really short time period. But... There are not there are not many signatories to the ABAC code. So Brewcott wasn't a signatory to the ABAC code. Neither is pretty much any independent brewer in the country. Um, and so, if a complaint is upheld, it can't really be enforced. They can't actually make you remove the product from the market if you're not a signatory to the code. You're not going to look good because it's going to go straight to a press release and wind up, you know, that, that this company's marketing to children and, you know, and, and, and not doing the right thing by community standards. But um, it's a really interesting way in which it all works out. Is there a cost involved in either somebody putting in a complaint or somebody responding to an ABAC um, decision? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, putting in a complaint is free. And you we, a, we're really lucky here in Australia because we have one of the most accessible complaints mechanisms in the world relating to not only advertising but alcohol advertising. Cool. Question for the panel uh, is for Hendo. Did they complain about your hashtag as well, join the cult? Uh, no, they didn't mention that. There's still time. <laughs> <laughs> they can always add it. Uh, any other questions before we move on to the next section? There we go. Richard Jeffers, just hold on there. Just with the social media side of things, which has a shelf life of about two days, by the time somebody's complained and everything else, how, because how, you see a lot of it out there at the moment, but how do you react? Because the damage is done, you know, the, the, the ad's been out, you might pull it a couple of weeks later, what happens? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Because you might want to ask Black Hops. I'm going to leave. I'll, you, you can. <laughs> I'm going to leave. I'll leave that one with you. Well, whether or not there is, in fact, a two-day shelf And again, life. it does depend on the severity of it. Um, there will be some social media posts, which I, I do recommend anyone that's still getting familiar with ABAC to go to the ABAC website. They do list all the complaints up there and whether they got um, upheld or dismissed. Um, and it is a really good tool to kind of gauge what crosses the line. Um, and to, to be honest, there's some up there where you look at and you're like that's actually something that could easily happen. Like some, some of them are a fine line where a word's just been put the wrong place in the sentence and it's just implied something that that sentence written a different way wouldn't have meant. Or um, I think Summersby recently got done because they... I'm oh, sorry, no, Vodka Cruiser because they had um, a social media post campaign that was all about... Um, girls that looked over 25 but they were wearing a lot of glitter and um, the board deemed that that was quite appealing. Um, that was something ch- children would take part in. Um, so there are some things that, you know, when there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm that you can kind of get a bit lost in and forget those boundaries. Um, so something like that, you can just take them off and you're right, the post has gone out and you, it's probably okay. Something with a little bit more impact that is a lot more, um, yeah, a lot more serious. Um, if it was a lot more blatantly 
um, depicting a minor. Um, the other flip side is while it's only visible, once it's on the internet, it's out there for life as well. <laughs> it's only there for a short term, and on the flip side, it is also there forever. People screenshot things. You just have to look at famous people. They put a tweet up, for, and within that two minutes, someone screenshot it, and it's out there for life. So, yeah, in terms of social media, it's... It's just it's good to learn from it, um, but it's also just good to just not put yourself in that spot. In so, is place. it also worth touching on at this point, which is a little bit off topic, but but kind of related? Um, sometimes, from a marketing point of view, it's not so much oh, okay, yeah, we, we we stuffed up there, but it's the reaction to it or how you respond can often, I oh, guess, do more damage than an ABAC you know, negative decision yeah, ever could. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and th- for those that were in the room for the previous session, it's like what Richard was saying about the recall. Like It really shows a lot about your brand ethos and um, where you actually take your customers seriously and how you treat them in times like that, um, especially when there's uh, stress or financial considerations. Um, yeah, it's the way you, if you can still put them first and take that as an opportunity to learn from it, um, communicate effectively with them. Um, you know, Don't treat your customers like... They're idiots. Like, there's some pretty basic things, but we're in, in times of trauma and pressure, they, they do get missed. Um, the other thing I wanted to note as well is that, same with the recalls, at the end of the day, it does all come back to the breweries. Um, if you've got an agency working for you, a social media agency, designers, um, as Hendo touched on, an influencer um, posting social media ads on your behalf, it still comes back to you. So the ABAC process will still... Um, prosecute uh, the brewery as part of it, not the influencer, not the um, agency that's posting your social media on your behalf. It all yeah comes back so to you. So the buck starts and stops with, with the you as the, as the brewer. Any other questions? G'day. Um, if you send your label to ABAC to review before you actually put it on a can or on a stubby, they pass it, it's all good, and then it still gets a complaint from a customer... What's the process then? What happens? Does ABAC then review the way they look at labels or do they just reply to the person making the complaint and just say it passes all our regulations? That's a very good question and it has happened. Um, Probably the one that that would spring to my mind, probably being the most infamous one, would be Duff Beer that came out a few years ago. It was pre-vetted. It was pre-vetted. And... um, and was and had the tick, and then uh, there was a religious group that just did a pages and pages complaint, lodged a complaint about how it appealed to minors. It was literally the Simpsons Duff beer can. I don't know how that would have passed pre-vetting or that sort of thing. Yeah, no, so I was involved in that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had my reservations, but uh, yeah, I followed the process, and the process was present the label to ABAC, ABAC did the review. We, uh, I think we were working with Fox on the time. And, um, yeah, we got the tick of approval. We went to market. Uh, complaint came in. ABAC then did uh, the, the review of the complaint and actually upheld the complaint against, I suppose, what originally they would have said, uh, given us a green light. And contrary, uh, post that, then we had to pull the product. It's a tricky one. You know, you, you get the green light, you move ahead, you do what you think is right, and then suddenly uh, things kind of taken about face and you're left with a withdrawal hindsight you'd probably go yeah there is a connection between duff beer simpson's children uh, but uh following the process you get the green light it doesn't necessarily mean you're you're home free so i think uh it's a good to put the i suppose the common sense approach as well to it and not just because you know if we think about jimmy says it's not where I would have gone for that one personally, and uh, yeah. So the you know you, you're kind of really depending on uh, maybe one or two people giving you a, a view on what they believe. Um, so then somebody else in the market picks it up and says something different, and then they go, "Yeah, we maybe have missed that point." So uh, yeah, I think I think that that, that does answer your question. And yeah. damn it, not necessarily on the the um, uh, alcohol side of things or the, the negative connotations, but leaning into I guess the trademark area in terms of using other you know whether it's Disney or other sort of references, characters, implications. Um, are there worries there outside of uh, like ABAC might say, yeah, that's fine, it doesn't appeal to children, but a, a Disney kind of you know no, keeping an eye on. Uh, yes, yeah, so th- that'll step more into your IP. So from so we do ABAC and then we would also work with our uh, IP lawyer 
And then they do a check on trade, uh, basically, can we use this name and uh, is there any reference? Is it protected? Because on that, at the end of the day, is uh, Endeavour Drinks or, say, Dan Murphy's or BWS, yeah. who are selling uh, this brewer's product, does the consumer consider, I bought it from Dan Murphy's rather than I bought it from ABC Brewery? Therefore, it, it's more likely to, if, if something goes wrong, they're more likely to, I guess, look disfavourably on you than the brewer? Like, do you take that attitude? Okay, I, I'd separate it out a bit. I'd go, ABAC, we're a signatory, so whatever ABAC says needs to happen, we will, uh, we will just do. Um, prior to that, obviously, uh, if we've got concerns that, you know, we, we know where, the, I suppose, the goalposts, the, the posts lie, if we feel that it's outside of it, uh, we will certainly be looking for that confirmation that you've got the green light from ABAC. Um, if that's there, then we will move forward with the product. Uh, from an IP perspective, um, generally that would not sit with us. Uh, it's more uh, that is the responsibility of the brewer. If it gets, you know, if somebody, if another organisation feels that that's connected to their brand, and you're then, uh, I suppose, making use of something that belongs to them, uh, they would chase the brewery. But uh, obviously, we would have to then look at removing the product again as well. Hendo, you heard something? Uh, yes. Uh, just back to your question there. Just because the, the, the answer is just because you get something pre-vetted, they actually pretty clearly state now when you go to pre-vetting, this is not a guarantee that this is going to pass the code. Any other questions before we move on? We've got one right here. Uh, I was just wondering if ABAC work purely in line with uh, community standards or do they respond to other complaints and compliance issues with nutritional standards, ABV, that kind of thing as well? So if they've got a, resp uh, a complaint from a consumer saying this is way stronger than 4%, where would that go? Would they That's it? food standards. Yeah, go straight there. So food standards is around the compliance with the liquid and food safety and that sort of thing. ABAC is around the marketing and advertising and community expectations. And presumably the ATO would be keeping a fair eye on if you're saying it's 4% but it's actually 8 They'll be looking for their... You'd be surprised how, how often that happens. Yeah, Pete, that's a, that, the ABV issue is, a, is something that's actually... Um, something that really as an industry we need to be monitoring fairly carefully as brewers because um, obviously the incident of hop creep um, and the challenges that uh, products re-fermenting in pack um, can actually increase the ABV of a beer. So brewers need to be aware that just because you've tested it the time you put it in the bottle or can or keg that the ABV was in spec and within the tolerance that the... Uh, packaging guidelines have, um, it, if it does continue to ferment in the package and goes up outside of those tolerances, um, yeah, you're, you're leaving yourself pretty exposed to the legalities of selling someone a product that is actually higher in ABV than what you've said it is. Cool. Got a question over here? And just following on from that, we were just having a chat before looking at the tap decals um, and the ones that have ABV on it and the ones they don't. And this was following on from the discussion at the previous panel about um, if your product is dangerous or there's some element of danger, um, labelling that to consumers. So if you're producing, say, a Berliner Weiss, it's an imperial, it's at 7.6% as opposed to um, what people might expect, say, in the mid-threes, and particularly if it tastes like it's in the mid-threes, um, on the pack you have to disclose that. But I think the um, food standards laws for tap decals, you don't have to disclose that. But if you look over here, you'll see about half do and half don't. And I think it's probably worth bearing in mind if you are producing a particularly alcoholic beer or higher than standard, it might be worth thinking about putting that on the, um, on the decal because otherwise someone has, say, four pots or three schooners or whatever and they think, well... I'll be fine to drive, and then they're not. They have an accident, and they didn't. They say they didn't realise how alcoholic it was. And probably the flow on from that is, um, given the creativity of brewers these days, the, the, the amount of different things we're throwing in in uh, brewing vessels, um, there is the allergen risk uh, as well. Which uh, in a package container, you obviously need to make sure you're putting allergens on there if there's something that's going to going to affect consumers. Uh, once again, on the on the on the tap decal, there's not the same. Um, not the same regulations in place. I guess just before we move on, um, and it will kind of go into um, Dermot's next bit, um, you know, ABAC, 
they are an independent body. It's not like they're a group chasing down fines and trying to you know, get stuck into our businesses as much as possible. Um, and I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that they're a tool for our industry. They're not a hindrance. Um, they're not there to stifle creativity or bring like, amazing flavours. or like, They're not there to hold anyone back. They're just there to help us as an industry get better. Um, at the moment, we are pretty self-regulated. We... I don't think anyone in our industry wants us to go down the path of cigarettes, and nor should we. Alcohol can... We all know we all know alcohol, when served in moderation, is a wonderful thing. We also know it does cause a lot of issues in our society. So we, as brewers and people associated with um, alcoholic um, businesses, we have that responsibility to um, do the right thing by the customers and society. Um, yeah, they're not there to... To be bad, and I, I, I think Hendo probably knows more on this than me because I think I've learnt all about this from you. But over in the US, like where it is a lot more strictly regulated yes. than us. Yeah. So um, look at yes, you're right. It's very easy to um, look at uh, the quasi-regulation system that we have here in Australia and go, oh, "Abac are a bunch of wowsers." And my personal experience with Gingerbread Maniac, as as funny as it was. You know, it's very easy to roll your eyes and go, oh, God, they're just a bunch of wowzers. But I would rather have the system that we have in Australia with quasi-regulation or self-regulation than, say, what our American compatriots do. If you make a beer in the US and you want to put it into a can or a bottle, you have to get your label approved by the, um, by the TTB. There's one guy who does it and it can take up to six months to have your label approved and you're not even allowed to release it. So with our system, you know, we could have we can have really short um, product development times and we can be nimble and flexible and keep up with industry trends as quick as the consumers, I nearly said punters, as quick as the consumers want to um, drink them. But I would rather have this system than what they have in the US, for yeah. instance. And I'm... I'm Sure, there are possibly a few people who um, are followers of Australian Brews News, um, Australia's leading source of beer brews news uh, views and opinions, um, who will know that Matt is often banging on about, you know, at the moment, self-regulation, um, it's everyone's responsibility, uh, but it, it beats the shit out of the alternative. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, rather, I'd rather have quasi-regulation than full government regulation, that's for sure. Because, that, yeah, that will be restrictions. Um, shall we move on to... Um, yeah, so let's move out of our industry and just go to another industry that um, it's a good example. So it's the American airline industry, and there was a, an event. I think I, I got to remember now. It's a flight from Chicago, I think, to um, say uh, no Louisville, Kentucky. So it's the last flight of the evening, and um, there is a kind of a sister. I think it was a sister airline, and there's some staff from that airline that need to get down to Louisville to be ready to get on a flight in the morning so they can go to work. Um, so they ask for volunteers. Who wants to get off the flight, uh, stay the night in Chicago, don't go home? And uh, they got a couple, maybe I'd say two, but they didn't get everyone, so they went and uh, did a, they, they chose who's coming off. And they chose this gentleman. And the gentleman had a, you know, he didn't want to stay the night. Um, it got a bit nasty. He got forcibly pulled off the plane, and completely manhandled, uh, physically hurt, and uh, I think the yeah the response from the United Airlines CEO was, uh, "It's his own fault for the assault." Yeah, so th that had an impact. Uh, so basically, what we found was um, you have, I suppose, your. Uh, Customer sentiment with the uh, industry, pre, during, and post. And what we, if you look at this, uh, you pretty much had an entire impact on the industry and people's opinion of the industry from that event. So using that example, it is, I think, it, you know, it's, it really highlights one of us doing the wrong thing within the industry will impact the industry. And this is a good example to uh, support that. So the lesson here, Dermot, is that people remembered, you know, maybe a week or two after that somebody had been forcibly removed from an airline yeah. but didn't necessarily draw the dots to the correct 
yeah, the and I, offending airline. Yeah, and coming back to uh, you know Zoe's point, we're, we're in the alcohol industry, and uh, it's a, it can be a sensitive uh, subject for some, and there are uh, bodies, I suppose, organisations that are actually working against and trying to, uh, I suppose, curtail the growth of craft beer and other alcoholic uh, beverages. Um, this, a lot of them, when you discuss the issue, are quite anti and would uh, quite happily have a teetotal um, uh, community running and, you know, w- we wouldn't exist. Now, that's not something I ever want to see happen for, uh, well, in my lifetime. Because Prohibition worked so well the first time. Yeah, around, yeah. Let's give it another run. <laughs> Mate, I, 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 there's, there's people dreaming of that. <laughs> and I, and I, now, so jokes aside, uh, it is, it's, and that's why it's important. So take it seriously. It's, uh, you know, the ABAC's there to really support us in that. You know, we need to, we've got a license to operate, and the license to operate is we need to adhere to the community standards. And it's not to, you know, wowzers or whatever. It's just basically doing the right thing by the community that we are in, part of. And then working with uh, the consumers that we can sell to, you know, you, the law is they must be over eighteen. So we certainly should ev- never be appealing to anybody under that age, and uh, really ensuring that you know we we take that uh, care. So we're producing products that are safe, good quality, and we're responsibly marketing them. And other than forums such as as, as this one, your business. You're, you were saying before, you're sort of very proactive and, and consultative working with brewers. It's, it's not as if, uh, look, no, we're not going to stock your brand and we don't say why. You're, I guess, consulting with absolutely either um, brewers that you want to stock or brewers who want to be stocked. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, and anybody can call me out if I, you know, I don't w- say what I do or do we've, what we've I say. We've got your private mobile number yeah. on the show notes. No, it, and... <laughs> My work number is available, so please do give me a call. Now, um, we're, I would hope that people would see us as being proactive and uh, having a, care, a high level of care for not only the suppliers we work with, but the industry that we're part of. Uh, we don't sit on our hands and just go, uh, somebody else's problem. We, we, we want to get in there and uh, make a positive impact. And if there's ways we can help uh, brewers understand the ins and outs and how to navigate uh very happy to help happy to have the conversation it's not a conversation that you're going to have with me and then i'm going to get worried and go oh god what's happening here no it's just like i started my life as a brewer uh, in 98 and spent two years in a craft small little brewery in dublin and i had no idea of anything i just fresh out of uni and uh, i had a lot to learn like i you know i never even considered brewing as a career at that stage and uh, I look back then and it's like, how much did I not know? And that's something that I feel that we can impart then to uh, brewers coming up now. And I, I, I get where you're coming from. I've been there. So, I, you know, I'm sympathetic. I'm, I, I really, I, I empathize and I want to support. Jamie, similar, similarly, um, as the, the industry body, uh, what sort of uh, assistance, I guess, can you offer, particularly some of the, the newer brewers, but also others that may be looking at bringing new products in or keeping us updated? How does it work? Yeah, I guess um, from the IBA perspective, obviously um, we have a vested interest in and our members in in having a healthy industry and um, obviously, as I said earlier, the social licence to operate is a key, uh, key piece of that. Um, so, yeah, you know, and I think that's a good demonstration, Those the stats around the airline industry impacted from one incident. Um, so one, one brewer doing something that uh, is upsetting a consumer or gets bad publicity is going to drag everybody down. Um, so it's very important from that perspective. Um, I think we just go back um, to the packaging, which I just wanted to touch on that because I don't think we, we, we sort of brushed over the, the, the legal requirements in terms of packaging. Um, um, I think there's a really important pieces of, and it's obviously in the IBA's labelling guidelines, but best before date, um, and there has been some conversation in the industry about whether best before dates are actually required or not. Um, and when you look at the Fazan's um, standards, it actually states that if any food product, which beer is a food product, um, is going to deteriorate, you need to identify at what period that product starts to deteriorate. So the best before date is a very important piece from a from a 
food standards perspective, but it's also putting it out there to the consumers can understand that that product beyond that date is has deteriorated from what the producer thought it was wanted it to be. So brewers' first imperative is to put a best before date on their packaging um, for that reason, and that helps the thousands of people out there in the liquor industry, retail industry, uh, and damn it's business or other businesses around the country being able to understand whether that product they've got on their shelf uh, is fit for sale um, and as the producer of that product would like it to be sold. Um, so that's an important piece. Recently we've seen the rise of packed on dates and packed on date to some consumers is informative because what it does is it says, okay, this is how old the beer is as opposed to it's beyond its point of deterioration. So consumers who understand, and there's not many of them out of the 14 million beer drinkers out there, but consumers do, who do understand that this is an IPA, therefore it's probably only going to last so long, they can make an informed decision on a packed-on date. But the uninformed shopkeeper out there who's got thousands of SKUs in his store to make sure are uh, right isn't going to pay attention to that packed-on date. They just can't. They can't know every product in, in terms of how long it's going to last on store. So both codes are very important. Packed on date and the best before date is what the IBA put out as our guidelines and, and I think that's a, a better way to go. It helps to inform consumer but also helps keep your, your product stock fresh out there. So that's, uh, yeah, we're, we're completely aligned with that and uh, we did send a communication out to a lot of our... Uh, key craft suppliers this week, um, really highlighting that this is what we w to range your product with us, you must have your best before date. Now that's, uh, to just uh, add to that, it, it's when the product has a shelf life of less than two years. So uh, some wines we have on our shelves have a product uh, shelf life of greater than two years, but maybe won't go to five years. Uh, that's that's given us some challenges. Uh, we've identified stock there that's actually not that great. So we're, we've had to go through um, an exercise of dumping product that we believe uh, we, we shouldn't. We, it's not. It's safe to sell, but it's just not that great a quality. Now, legally, with uh, less than two years, it's yes. If it, it's not going to look great at, within the two-year window, you must have the best before code. So gold standard for us is, uh, as we communicated, um, have the best before, but the packed on as well. If you can do that, that, that from a consumer perspective, that's the best information. They, they, they can actually then work out exactly the age of the beer. And there's greater movement now from uh, customers actually drink fresher beer. You know, if we go to a brewery, drink fresh beer, we know what that tastes like. We're now uh, getting consumer feedback to actually be able to tell us what in, that if they've been experienced an aged beer. Um, and then we've also brought in the point of the food safety uh, protocols and uh, the recall protocol. But uh, I think key to this uh, discussion really is that best before date. Yeah, I think probably supported by... I mean, it's easy. the easiest bit is actually putting the code on the bottom of the can or the, or the neck of the bottle. The, the, the challenging bit for brewers is actually to manage the amount of stock they're selling into the trade because uh, that, that's, the, that's the final impact on the age of the stock is if you decide you're going to put six new SKUs into the marketplace and you go down the road to the local bottle shop and sell him a whole stack of your six new SKUs and expect that's going to walk off the shelf straight away. Um, if you sell more in that, that that retailer is going to be able to sell in the three-month period and you've put best before three months on there, then all you're doing is setting yourself up to fail because you're going to have stock that you're either going to have to get back if you're that proactive or the retailer will stick it in the $2 bottle bin or the dollar bottle bin at the front of the store and get rid of it um, or it sits there and it actually deteriorates and is sold later on um, to someone and they get a beer that you didn't really want them to drink that standard so labelling's one piece the behaviour and actually selling it into the trade and managing your stock levels in the trade with your with your customers is a really important piece of the puzzle. Uh, we've got a question over here. I'm a little bit nervous because um, it's a bit of a ventriloquist act because I saw Matt Kierkegaard put his hand up, but I suspect Brendan Virus is actually wanting the question. Um, so we're, we're actually out of time. No. Brendan? Quickly on the pack date or best before date, I should say, given that 99.999999% of beers aren't going to have a pathogen that makes us ill, does that make that best before date totally arbitrary um, as to what standard of individual brewery wants to put on that or is there something else? 
That's a very good question. So basically what you're saying, BV, is uh, if I'm a brewer and I'm going to put a nine-month best before date on my product, will my product actually last the nine months that I'm putting on the label? And that's a question that's really... Um, uh, it raises issues with regards to retailers and that sort of thing. I mean, there's uh, retailers who won't buy product that's more than two months or that's less than two months before its best before date. Um, as alcoholic beverage manufacturers or being brewers, it's pretty rare for our product to make people sick if it goes off. But the quality of the product is what deteriorates and that what that's what determines how a brewer would consider how long a best before date they want to put on their product. If I was... Um, you, you know, the things that a brewer who's starting out needs to be considerate of is um, how well your processes are during manufacture of the product to make sure that uh, your product will last. And that might be uh, a micro program. It might be dissolved oxygen, which uh, really will trail off the quality of a beer very quickly. Um, you know, your packaging equipment and processes and that sort of thing. You just can't arbitrarily go and slap a 12-month, 18-month, 9-month uh, best before date. You've, if you're going to write that on your package, you've got to commit to it. And so that might be – and how you might commit to that is you might do things like uh, you might have a beer retention library. So you keep, your, keep, keep a case of your beer as long as it's on its best before date and keep it. And um, you might – bring it out of the retention library and put it in front of a sensory panel uh, over a period of its shelf life to see how it's ageing and how well it's ageing uh, over time. And you might um, conduct some experiments around forced ageing of product. So you might um, uh, put some product into a 30, 35, 40 degree incubator more or less uh, to see what happens with the, the product over time because uh, the higher the temperature the shorter the shelf life. It's very similar to milk. So by force aging product, you can actually see how, uh, in, in a short space of time, you can see how well your product is going to fare over its declared best before date. To Brendan's point, you, you said nine months, but you could make it three yes, if you Yes, that's wanted. right. You, you're, not, you're not obligated to pick any um, best before date. It's up to you to decide how long you want your best before date. This is probably a question that can't be answered. It's more of a statement. Right. But someone likes... <laughs> <laughs> But we'll talk about you know, Stone Awards, such a huge product, successful in almost every outlet that it's in, huge turnover. What kind of guarantees can a brewer have from a retailer in the rotation sense of the product? So if I've got a display, 20-case display of Stone and Wood, on the floor there, there's five left, I'm getting another 15, my staff are lazy, they're just going to chuck it on top. Over six, nine, 12 months' time, I'm going to have five cases there that haven't been rotated, even though the product is selling. So what kind of management can you have over that? Obviously working with your customer, um, education, educating the customers and the staff in, the, in those outlets in terms of how to rotate stock, whether it's a pub or, or rotating kegs or a, or a bottle shop rotating package stock. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is take responsibility for it. Um, so you've got sales guys out on the road calling on your customers part of their role in calling on a venue should be an audit of quality of product. Um, so, for example, um, our Stone and Wood guys, um, they have a thing on their phone, they walk into a venue, they randomly select products from our, our range in the, in the store and they, and they log best before dates of, those, of that stock, um, look at packaging quality, all sorts of things, make sure it's still uh, the way we'd like it to be and that, that, that then rolls back to a... And a weekly report that we, we, we see back at the brewery in terms of how our stock age is trending in the trade. Um, so keeping a real eye on it is an important piece of the puzzle. Cool. Uh, got another question over here. Actually, I think Hendo answered it before, but it was going to be um, coming back to what Brendan said. It is, from a legal perspective, you're lucky because it's a best before and not a use by because the nature of the product is not going to hurt someone if you, if you keep it too long. So it is arbitrary depending on how long you think it's going to take to get through the trade and if you've got customers who are requiring a particular length of time to, to stock it. Is that an appropriate time then to dispel the myth that you can't get into Uncle Dan's unless you've got a, you know, like a three and a half yeah, year so I, I, expiry date? So our recommendation would be if it's on pasteurised, uh, no more than nine months. Uh, 
it's not up to us to tell you how long you should put on it. Uh, I think you got to re- why do you put it on it? Um, it's something you should be proud of. It's uh, you put a lot of love and care, and uh, you 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 pride yourself as uh, great brewers. Um, somebody's going to pick that product up, and they're going to drink it, and they're going to hate it. Is that what you intended? So if you're going to give them a shelf life of twelve months, and it's not going to look great after six months, why do it? Um, that's I think that's where you got to you really got to think about the person that's making the decision to drink your product buy and pay for it. You're not getting giving it to them for free. Uh, they're actually back to Jamie's point. It's hard earned cash. Uh, you, you, your products are at the top end of the the market from a price point. They're premium products, so consider that. You know, um, you got to have it. It's pride. It's you really want to care for your consumer and you want them to have the best possible experience. So if the product is best to six months and have a look at the supply chain, that's information we can share with you. Um, that's what it is. I, I definitely know we've got products on our shelves that uh, brewers have said, yeah, six months shelf life, that's it. And then I know other brewers will put 12 months. Um, back to Hendo's point, validate it. Do your, do your uh, shelf life testing. Product sits on a shelf in your brewery, taste it every month. You'll actually be able to then collect that data and understand how that beer develops over time. And it's, what's happening is it's aging. So the flavor profile will change. But if you're making the same beer with the same recipe every time, you're actually going to see, you'll, you'll, you'll actually understand what that process looks like once you collect enough data. Cool. We've got a question down the front. Uh, Tim Sides from Wild Poly Brewing in Canberra. Firstly, thanks to the IBA for putting out those guidelines on packaging. They're absolutely fantastic and it made our job so much easier for our first time round. Um, one thing about that, getting down to the third point on country of origin, um, because we're a non-priority food, we only have to put product of Australia or made in Australia if it's not made of um, 100% Australian ingredients. I think a lot of people are just putting product of Australia on there. When um, coming from a farming background, I'd really like to see um, a bit of education around that so people are supporting Australian farmers more. So um, and and the, so first thing, can we do more to educate brewers about where their products are coming from? And two, is there any thought about moving away from that volunt- um, non-priority food to voluntarily declaring um, as a priority food and putting the kangaroo logo and the 99% or 95% or 50% ingredients on logos, on packaging? Um, There's certainly a lot of work going on um, around country of origin ingredients across the whole food sector Um, and I think think obviously the challenge there for us at the moment as a brewing industry is it's a pretty complex given the ingredient makeup of, of a lot of our members' products. Um, but, but I think we're going to see more and more of a, an origin focus around ingredients come over time. I know, um, I know, I don't know whether we'll end up with like the wine industry, but you know, certainly the idea of ge- geographic identification is indicators are certainly something that has been talked about for a while. It's not really on the radar from a beer industry perspective yet, but, but certainly food wise, um, there's, a, there's a move to that. Damn it, you might be able to more detail into it. Uh, I've seen a couple examples uh, from a brewing industry perspective where uh, they've been using blockchain and uh, you get onto the can and basically that whole uh, supply chain of all the materials that have gone into that beer, you can basically get a full view on that. Um, so, And that's voluntary. That's uh, just... You will have consumers that that's a it's a point of differentiation from for you as a brewer if you've you've put the effort into where you're sourcing your materials and you think then communicating that to your consumer adds value to your product and then also that point of differentiation. So, absolutely, if it's something you feel that you that that can that it can achieve that for you, uh, by all means uh, look into it. There's no restriction on that. I know we're eating into recess now and everyone's hanging out for their play lunch, but we have got one more question. Brendan? Uh, so a more almost a call-out slash warning, and that is more along the lines of what you mentioned. That, that's all pretty generous stuff and uh, in terms of what we've got to put on our labels at the moment, um, and particularly when it comes to the, the best before. There are we're, we're creative beasts, brewers, craft brewers in particular, and we're always looking for the next new thing and the next exciting thing. There's anecdotally a, a 
bit of evidence that um, some craft brewers might have gone a whisker too far um, and that there are some pathogens that are in lower strength beers now harmful to people. Um, so it's probably just a call out that um, to just think a little bit that th this is pretty good. We got a lot of infill in terms of what we can do creatively within the bounds that we need to declare at the moment. Um, don't just chuck stuff in your beer because it's going to taste a little bit funny when it may actually make it harmful to people um, in terms of the you know the the ferment and bacteria yeast or whatever else you might be um, using and it comes back to the die made piece around the whole industry getting hurt by the actions of of one or or regulated by the actions of one so I reckon we're on not bad a wicket here at the, at the moment so before we go and throw meat and whatever else might infect beers in funny ways and 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 harm people let's think about that and on that very positive note of let's <laughs> not kill people uh, we do need to bring the session to a close now would you please thank all of our panelists to zoe jamie hendo and to dermot yet again thank you very much thank you very much to um uh to cry malt for sponsoring the trade hub and to uh beer deluxe uh, Trent and the crew for looking after us and Georgia who have been absolutely wonderful. Uh, make sure you do get back for more of these because as I say, it's cost you nothing and you get free beer if you come to a Bruce News sponsor where Bruce News provides the, the beer. We'll talk about that later, Zoe. Um, but, and thank you to uh, all of you for taking a little bit of time out of your very valuable Good Beer Week. Uh, get out there and enjoy the rest of Good Beer Week. Cheers. Don't forget, if you like what we do here at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You'll find details in the show notes. You can also review us on iTunes or whatever your favourite podcasting service happens to be. Let us know what you think and help others find and discover our shows. Finally, you can tell us what you think about what's going on in the beer industry by emailing us at producer at brewsnews.com.au. All letters received will receive in return, as by way of thanks, a Brews News bottle opener. And thanks to our very good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of great Australian beer. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because, as you may have heard, beer is a conversation. Beer is a conversation.